Hi, this is jazz guitarist Tom Lippincott, and you're listening to GMI. That's right, folks. Wherever you are in the world listening to this, a very warm welcome to GMI. My name is Jed Brocky, and as you've heard, today I'm talking to jazz guitarist Tom Lippincott from the USA. Tom is an incredibly talented guitar player, and I was looking for a wide-ranging interview. However, we started talking about his eight-string guitar, and we really didn't get much further than that. So this whole episode is almost entirely devoted to talking about Tom's eight-string guitar, which is quite an instrument and something you've got to hear and see. I'm hopeful that we'll have another podcast with him. He's got a very busy schedule, but fingers crossed. Some news for Alexa owners. If you own an Alexa, you can now actually command Alexa to open the GMI podcast. How cool is that? All you have to do is simply say, Alexa, open GMI Guitar Music Institute, or you can say, Alexa, start GMI Guitar Music Institute, and the current podcast episode will play. Now, there are a whole lot of other commands available, skipping between episodes, moving forward and back, and I've put that on the GMI website at www.guitarmusicinstitute.com with the current and any future podcast episodes. The last thing to say is that just by listening to this podcast, you can get 15% off at the gmiguitarshop.com. got a very large range of guitar aids, lessons, books and more and all you need to do is to choose whatever you wish and at the end where you've got your basket put in the code just as you're checking out all you need to put in is gmi01 all of these details are available on the website okay let's get right into today's podcast interview with jazz guitarist tom lippincott Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us. I'm happy to be here. For the listeners around the world, the reason I came across Tom was because in another part of my life, I actually teach students to play guitar. And I came across an article or a PDF by Tom, which was fantastic. Why recreate something that's already done? And I got in touch with him and he very kindly allowed me to share that with my students. And here we are. The first thing I really wanted to talk about, Tom, and you probably get this all the time, but I'll ask you anyway, the eight-string guitar. Now, I was lucky enough to see George Van Epps with a seven-string guitar live way back in 1987. You play an eight-string guitar. Could you maybe talk the listeners through that and how it works and how it came about? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I, as you mentioned, I do get lots of questions about it. People come up to me at gigs all the time and say, how many strings are on that thing? You know, and my usual glib answer is I can't count that high. I'm a guitar player. <laughs> uh, basically, it, it goes back to one of the guys you mentioned, George Van Epps, uh, has for a long time been a big hero of mine. And as you know, a lot of jazz guitar players know, he was famous for pioneering the seven string guitar and he had a low A string. So uh, I hadn't actually thought about getting a seven-string guitar with that tuning, really, but I, I was always a huge George Van Epps fan. And a little bit later on, uh, I also was introduced to the music of Lenny Bro. Uh, it's kind of funny with Lenny Bro because when I was a teenager, I used to read Guitar Player magazine, and he had a, 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 a article, or a, what do you call that, a, a column in guitar player and 
I rem I always remember reading it said finger style jazz guitar, and at the time I was getting into Joe Pass and John McLaughlin and I maybe John Schofield people like that, and when I saw the word finger style, it's it said to me, oh, he must be playing like some kind of old fashioned like ragtime or something. So I, I was totally not interested, you know. So it wasn't until a lot later on, a friend of mine, he was actually a bass player, but he he's a pretty smart guy and, you know, interested in a lot of different things. And he asked me, have you ever heard Lenny Bro? And I said, well, I, I know the name and, you know, have heard about him. I said, oh, man, you should check him out. I've, I've got these recordings of him that I found. And he played me some stuff. And I was just completely blown away the first time I heard uh, you know, it sounded like there was two guitar players playing and what people usually say when the, their initial reaction. Uh, so I became an immediate huge fan. I just loved him. Yeah. And this was probably when I was in my mid to late 20s. And I had already been playing some classical guitar. So I was a little bit familiar with playing with my fingers. And I was also a huge fanatic of piano players and specifically Bill Evans. And then I pretty quickly found out that, you know, Bill Evans was Lenny Bro's big hero. So it definitely was, you know, kind of only natural that I became a huge Lenny fan. So uh, this same friend of mine, uh, I think at some point mentioned, have you ever thought about playing a seven string guitar? No, but I have thought about playing an eight string. Right. Yeah. And the thought hadn't even occurred to me, but I, you know, I love Lenny's playing so much and, and Bill Evans and a bunch of other piano players, Keith Jarrett, Brad Meldow. And um, I thought, you know, that would be pretty cool. It would be a pretty big commitment. But and this friend of mine was one of these guys that always does tons of research. And he was always sending me literature from guitar companies that made this guitar custom or that or whatever. So he almost kind of twisted my arm and talked me into it. And uh, my initial um, attempt was I was going to try to do it on the cheap because I was broke. And I bought uh, a guitar body. It was a Telecaster body. And I, from my friend, I got connected with this uh, guitar builder in California who would, uh, I think he offered to build me an eight string neck for really inexpensive. It was like, I don't know, 200 bucks. I can't really remember what it was, but it was something like that. So I said, sure, I'll, you know, I'll take a gamble. And I got the neck in the mail and I was all excited. And when I first tried to put it on the guitar and kind of start to work out some of the math, I suddenly realized that the neck was too narrow to fit the strings at the on the upper frets. You know, it, it didn't really have that taper that most necks do. And there was just no way I'd be able to make it to work. The string spacing would have to be so close together to fit eight strings on it that it would just be impractical. So I kind of gave up on that. And then fairly shortly after that, oh, you know what? I'm getting ahead of myself here. I've, I forgot to, to mention why I settled on eight strings in the first place. So my, my initial idea was just to buy a seven string guitar. And at the time, uh, Steve Vai was kind of famous for playing seven string, I think with a low B. And there were a lot of, like Ibanez had several seven string models and a few other companies had come out with them. So I thought, oh, this is easy. I'll just buy kind of the least expensive seven string guitar I can find and tune it like Lenny. And after I did an experiment or two on one of my regular guitars trying to tune a string up to a high A, I immediately realized that was not going to work. Um, even on a Gibson scale guitar, which is, you know, a shorter than a, a Fender scale, I uh, could only get the string up to about an A flat before it would break. Can you just explain to the listeners what you mean by scale, Tom? Okay. Scale simply means the distance 
how long the string is from the nut to the bridge, what the, the length of the string that vibrates. And it has to do with physics. And one thing I usually tell people if they're puzzled about this is if you look inside of a piano, you, you'll see immediately that the high strings are really short and the low strings are really long. And that's just kind of the way physics works. It's really hard to tune a string really high that's really long. And if you have a string that's really short and tune it really low, it's usually really floppy and barely works at all. So generally speaking, with any stringed instrument, the higher the pitch is, the, the shorter the string is. Like a violin or a mandolin are very short string lengths. And a, a, let's say an electric bass will be much longer. So. Uh, my initial idea that you know I could just take it off the rack seven string and make it work was kind of a bust. So the next step was to, to realize that I was going to have to do some kind of custom thing, and that's when I hit on the idea of making that guitar on the cheap. And and then I thought, well, if I if I'm designing it from the ground up, I can do anything I want. It doesn't just have to be a seven string guitar off the rack. And of course, because I was a George Van Epps fan, I thought, well, since I'm, you know, going this far, I might as well try the low string as well and see what happens. So that was how I kind of hit on the idea. Of course, I already told the story about the, the first big failure. So uh, I, I called a few companies and I remember talking to a couple of luthiers in person. And I, the, the biggest memory I have is being laughed at. <laughs> yeah. I, I seriously had one guy just like bust up laughing when I said, would you ever be interested in building an eight string guitar? And he said, are you kidding? I've got so many orders for six strings and I've got all my equipment set up for that. Why would I, why would I want to do some crazy thing like that? That would basically be a money loser for me. So I was a little bit discouraged, but eventually I found this guitar builder, uh, Bill Conklin, who's in Springfield, Missouri. There was actually another guy who's probably more well-known, especially for the multi-string thing, which is Ralph Novak in California that builds Novak's guitars. He, his claim to fame is Charlie Hunter, but he was a lot more expensive. So uh, in between the two guys, th those were the two that I found that you know were actually willing to build what I wanted to have built. And Bill Conklin's prices were much lower, and he was also really good about spending a lot of time with me and finding out exactly what I wanted. And he seemed genuinely excited about the project, not just like I was another, you know, customer that would ka-ching in the cash register. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of a, a natural decision to go with him. And so that's that's what happened. I, I had him build the guitar. Just on that, Tom, about five years ago, I was thinking about getting a guitar built for myself. And once I actually looked into it, I realized it was never going to happen. One was on price, but secondly... It was on lead time. The amount of time. I mean, I don't know why everyone isn't building guitars. They all seem to have a lead time of about a couple of years. Yeah. What, what, what was the lead time for you on building this very specific instrument? You know, I, I don't remember specifically, but I remember that it was really good compared to what most people are. It was, I'm pretty sure it was less than a year. And there's actually kind of an interesting story about that as well, if you want to hear it. Absolutely. I, you know, had commissioned him to have the guitar built and he was working on it. And, and actually, also, I have to say, he was really great about giving me updates along the way and letting me know, you know, we've got to this stage and we've got this much time left and so forth. Sorry, when you commissioned the builder, to, the guitar builder to do this, did you give him anything more than I want an eight string guitar? Did you give oh, him yeah. other spe specifications? I want this, I want that. 
Yeah, I gave him some pretty specific stuff. For one thing, uh, a third person that I'll mention that is also a huge hero of mine is Ted Green. And if you're familiar with him, he, he's most well-known for playing Telecasters. And so that was the third idea that I had with this guitar, is I wanted to make it sort of like a Ted Green Telecaster with a Lenny Bro high A string and a George Van Epps low string. So um, I wanted to make the guitar somewhat like a Telecaster. So uh, Bill Conklin had a body shape that he already made that was not exactly a Telecaster, but it was pretty close. And... Uh, we, we talked back and forth. I originally wanted a maple fingerboard, and he kind of talked me out of that. He said, you know, there were, I forget what the reasons were, but he, he convinced me that I should go with, I, I, actually, I don't even know for sure. I'm pretty sure it's rosewood, but it might be something slightly more exotic than that, but it's that dark colored wood that looks like rosewood. Anyway, that's what I ended up with. I've got a, like this typical, I guess it's not really a Telecaster style bridge, it's more like the kind of bridge that would be on a hardtail Stratocaster, something along those lines with the individual saddles, you know, just two pickups, like a like a Les Paul style, like two humbucking pickups. And, um, and lots of knobs. And lots of notes, absolutely. No, knobs, the, the, the... Snobs, right. Oh yeah, and, and that, at the time, I was playing a lot of guitar synthesizer, so one of the things that was really important to me was that I wanted this guitar, this new one, to have the capability to, to be a guitar synth controller. The bad news that I immediately found out is that all uh, guitar synths that are in production are only designed to accommodate six strings. So Bill actually told me that if I wanted to use it with all eight strings, what I'd have to do is have some kind of a splitter box built that I could plug into and then use two guitar synthesizers and I thought, oh, that's, you know, kind of too bad. But at the time I thought, okay, you know, whatever, I'll go with it. Were you looking at the Axion at the time? I think I knew someone that had one and I tried it out. Yeah, that was one I, I checked out. But at, at the time I owned a Roland... GF-Bio3. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, well, later on, I, I bought a GR300, the old vintage one that Pat Matheny plays. Sorry, yeah, I was going to why I said 303, yeah, 300, yeah. I think the 303 might actually be one of the controllers that they made for oh, that. Right, okay. I had one of those, and uh, I thought, I want to be like Pat Matheny, and after 15, well, not 15 minutes, but after a couple of weeks, I thought, what's the point of me sounding like a bad Pat Matheny? <laughs> yeah, I kind of thought the same thing, but... The, the thing that happened with me, and I, I'm kind of jumping around here on subjects, but um, the one thing I loved about the GR300, the thing I hated about it was exactly what you were talking about. You know, it, you couldn't hear somebody play one without immediately thinking, oh, he's trying to sound like Pat Metheny. I, I know exactly why Pat loves that particular synth so much. It's because it's so expressive compared to most of the other synths that are out there especially the, the more modern varieties that use MIDI, you're basically just triggering a sample. So you're not really touching the note when you play it. You're just kind of pressing a button, starting a recording, and then add to that the mechanical difficulties of converting guitar string signal into MIDI, and there's these false notes that happen and so forth. So the Roland GR300 doesn't have any of that stuff. It, it, it uses the actual signal from the string and processes it to make it sound like a synth, yeah. Have you heard of uh, Roland's Cosm? They gave me a, a box, the Cosm GR uh, VG800 or something. Yes. Is it working more on that sort of... Absolutely, yes. Right. Yeah, uh, a friend of mine had the, the VG8, which is, I think, the that's first it. one they made. Yeah, that's it, yeah. 
Same same idea. So it's, a, it's something to do with the vibrations of the string, is is uh, as opposed to taking the 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 data and then you know uh, I'm running out of words on how to actually you tell them how it do it how it does it to them. Yeah, the, the traditional or the typical guitar synthesizer is basically what they call pitch to MIDI, where when you play a note on the guitar, the electronic components in the synthesizer unit read the, the pitch, which means that it takes a split second for it to read. It, it's got to go through, I think, two cycles of vibration for it to hear what the pitch is. And then it takes that information, converts it to ones and zeros, and changes it to MIDI. And then you can use that to trigger a sample, which is exactly how a keyboard synthesizer works. But the problem with that is, just like with a keyboard synth, you, you, there's only so much expressiveness that you can uh, take advantage of. All the little subtle things that we guitar players do to add life to our the notes that we play the nuances yeah the nuances are are kind of missing when you're when you're going through that process and i always kind of felt like i was you know playing the guitar with gloves on or something it was like it was like one step removed from me and the music but i initially i was so knocked out by the fact that i could play something on my guitar and hear a symphony orchestra or a vibraphone or a trumpet or just some new sound that, you know, like a synth sound, that was so addictive that I really got into it for probably about 10 years. Were you like me in that after that initial um, glow period, you actually realized that you can't really beat the sound of an acoustic or an electric guitar. Just, just can't. Yeah. There's something boring about it to me eventually about those sounds. I don't know what it is in the actual signal itself, but it, it sort of you eventually get bored with it. Whereas I've never got bored with a, a nylon string, a steel string, or just a straight a straight sounding guitar through an amp. I just don't don't understand why that is. Yeah, so that's exactly right. And and I think it's exactly what we were talking about that the nuances are lost and there's only so much variety from note to note when you're playing you can change the volume level definitely by how hard you pick or how soft it sends that midi information and really fancy samples will even take like if let's say you're playing a piano sample and it's a really nice one that was done with a lot of care they will sample the piano like playing the note C at a really loud volume level and then a medium level and a quiet level. But the thing is, an acoustic piano, it's gonna, each note's going to sound different depending on what else is going on. What Are you playing 12 notes at once? Are you playing one note? Are you playing three notes? Are, is there a, drum, a loud drummer next to you? you know, and the piano is going to sound totally different in each of those different contexts. And none of that gets translated, even in the absolute most nicely done samples. You only get a fraction of those details. So, so we're, a yeah. pair, we're a pair of blethers, and this is brilliant because we're going all over the place. <laughs> but the eight-string guitar, did you go for the MIDI? I did, and so I had him set it up so that I could trigger the highest six strings, because I figured that was the best bet. I I was going to mostly want to use it for solos and, or maybe comping, and not so much for playing bass, I thought. So I had it done that way. And then I thought that eventually maybe I would get that splitter box and do that whole thing. But oddly enough, right around the time that I got that guitar was when I was starting to really get burnt out on synthesizer in general anyway. So. By the, you know, it, it just became obvious pretty quickly that it wasn't going to be worth all that trouble to do that when I was kind of losing interest in guitar synth anyway. So can I ask you a, a simple question? What For the listeners out there, Tom, what is the tuning of the eight strings? Okay, so yeah, that is a, one of the first questions I always get too. 
these days, a lot of people assume that I've got a low B string and a low F sharp because of all the progressive metal players out there that are using that tuning. But uh, no, I've got the, the inner six strings are exactly like a regular guitar, just your you know E B G uh, D A E, and then I've got on the the lowest note below the low E string, a fourth below is a B, which now that may sounds strange because I was just talking about wanting to imitate George Van Epps, who used a low A. When I got that guitar, I tried both. I tried the A and the B, and I just decided I felt like the B made more sense for me. I liked the idea that it continued the fourths, and I wasn't so much, at, especially at that time, interested in using the low string for bass you know, to like imitate a bass player. I, I more just wanted to be able to play more of the stuff that piano players do. So I thought, you know, a chord, like like when you end a song that's in E flat on a six string guitar, there's always that, oh man, I wish I had that extra half step, you know. Der, 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 der. Exactly. So I, you know, just for stuff like that, I just wanted to have a little bit of extra range, but I liked the idea of keeping the fourth. So I just decided to, to go with the B instead of the A. So is that like in Spinal Tap when you just need that little bit more push it over the cliff <laughs> yeah yes. i have a guitar that the low range goes to 11 uh, and then on the top range of the guitar the some some people that aren't real experienced with the guitar when i say the high string they assume i mean the one closest to the ceiling but that the the highest string in pitch is actually closest to the floor so that's the one i'm talking about now is an A, which is a perfect fourth above the normal high E string of a guitar. So it's basically, years ago, I was explaining this to a, a bass player, and he said, oh, it's just like a six-string bass. And I realized, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because, you know, four-string bass has the traditional four-string tuning, and then a six-string bass usually has one extra on each side, one high string and one low. And so, yeah, it's a, just the same idea, just extend the range on both ends. So getting back to, to George's way of doing it with an A, mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that was a mistake? Absolutely not. No. For what he did, it worked great. And uh, a lot of most jazz guitar players these days that play seven string do use the low A. And there's a whole tradition involving that. A good friend of mine, Steve Herberman, who I is a fellow Mike's Masterclasses uh, instructor, he he's a great seven string guitar player who tunes to the low A and he does great stuff with that uh, you know i i could never uh assume to say oh no he you know that's a mistake he should tune to a b as a matter of fact that uh, last time i played with him i remember being really jealous of his b flat and his a whenever he would you know play those low notes is that the guy that you're there's a video of you playing out of nowhere yes yes yeah. he's got a really yeah. nice that's a really nice uh, guitar he's got the other i don't i didn't notice if that was a, a seven straight blue it, was it a blue guitar? No, maybe not. Red Sunburst. But it, oh, it, that one, yeah. I believe, was made by Bill Cummins. Right, okay. And he had a really nice guitar. And, and he makes it sound great, too. I, I don't know if you've ever heard that old story about Chet Atkins that he was playing guitar and somebody walked up to him and said, Chet, that guitar sounds great. And so he put it on the guitar stand and said, how's it sound now? You know, I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> I just feel self-conscious, but you know, yeah. like that, somebody's guitar sounds great, and I would be implied that I'm saying that it's the guitar, not the player, that sounds great. Now, are you trailblazing here? There are lots of people wanting to play eight-string guitar or seven-string guitar, where there's an extra string on top. Not so much. I, I really have run across very few people. Um, it, in my travels, I'm sure you can imagine that I've, you know. The, the people that are out there, I think most of them I've run across just because it's such a rarity that we usually find each other somehow. 
there was a guy in Canada years ago that I read about. I don't think I ever actually talked to him, and I honestly don't remember his name either, but he was doing the exact tuning that I was doing. Uh, there was a guy that I talked to, uh, I wish I could remember his name. He, I know he was from Sweden, and he had lived in New York for a little while, and he played a nine-string guitar that was my tuning plus the low F sharp. Johnny Johansson, I think, was his name. Well done. I, I think. You're missing a trick here, Tom. You, this is the beginning of a sort of a niche within a niche, or as you guys say, a niche within a niche. Yeah. <laughs> the seven, the eight string club. Yeah, there really aren't that many people out there. I very rarely do I meet somebody, and I only once or twice even had a student who expressed any interest in it. And usually, well, part of that is I I do try to encourage my students to do their own thing and not just you know try to imitate me or some other hero of theirs. Uh, so I think a lot of them take that to heart and think, okay, you know, that's Tom's thing is the eight string. I'll I'll do something else. But um, here's a big question. It may just be that it's technology and the existing tools that already exist that has made the guitar six strings and people don't want to retool to, to go up to eight strings. But what is the musical effect of having eight, an eight string guitar? Well, it definitely expands my capabilities quite a bit. Just to give you a really quick, obvious example, if you want to, on a six string guitar, imagine if you wanted to play your low F, the first fret of the, of the low E string, and let's say a high E at the 12th fret of the high E string, unless you have some, you know... Tal Farlow hands. Yeah, or, or, or double Tal Farlow's hands. There's no way physically possible to do that. Whereas on my 8th string, it's super easy. I play the... My F is would be at the 6th fret of the low B string, and my that high E that's the same as the 12th fret high E string is simply at the seventh fret of the high A string. So I'm two frets apart. It's, you know, on two ends of the fretboard, but it's really easy to grab those two notes. So in terms of playing with other instruments, i.e. a bass player, do you find that the overtones start to clash, that you're, you're, you're just muddy in that lower range? How does that work? Well, I could see how that would be very possible to be a problem, but my solution with that is if I'm playing with a bass player, first of all, I, I don't really play the low string very much at all, and I also tend to set my amp with not a whole lot of bass. I, I try to get more of a mid-range sound than a bass sound, and uh, especially if I'm playing with a bass player. If I'm if I'm playing in a situation where there's no bass player, then I might want a little extra bass to because I am often playing bass lines. But if I'm playing with a bass player, I'll try to stay out of his frequency range or her frequency range, both notes and also frequencies of, you know, that I'm emphasizing in the the notes that I am playing. How often have you played with piano players who almost their whole careers have only played solo piano? Discuss. <laughs> yeah, that's a kind of a, a sore subject for many guitar players, isn't it? There, there, there are lots of piano players out there who are kind of used to just playing everything. Um, even piano players that haven't just exclusively played solo piano, maybe a piano player who's been playing a long time with bands, but is really accustomed to being the only harmonic instrument, and you know, all of a sudden they're stuck with a guitar player, and they just, you know 
don't know what to do with this annoying other instrument that's playing chords. So I, I have to say, well, first of all, jazz is my sort of my my main uh, focus, and I, I guess I consider myself a jazz musician if I had to label myself something. And the jazz tradition has, for a long time, guitar played a very minor role in that. Uh, you know, the, obviously there's a few really great towering figures in jazz guitar, like Charlie Christian and Wes Montgomery and Jim Hall and so forth. But during those time periods, those guys were more outliers than, you know, the common thing. And so most piano players for most of the history of jazz were really accustomed to ruling the roost harmonically and being the only instrument that was playing chords. I think that has started to change. In the last maybe 20 or 30 years, guitar seems to, to me to have really come into its own in the jazz world. And now if you go to New York and go to any jazz club, I, I'm going to bet that you're equally as likely to find a guitar player as the chord instrument and the band as you are a piano player. So I think younger piano players are more accustomed to playing with guitar, but I still encounter that pretty regularly, yeah, right. I think, and you've just mentioned him, a player that really helped me understand about playing with piano players is Wes Montgomery, because he, he approached it much more in a rhythmic fashion, didn't he, when there was a piano player there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this it goes both ways, too. I don't mean to, to come off sounding like, oh, all these, you know, rude piano players won't let us have our harmonic room. I mean, we have to by the same token, you know, get along with them. And we have that also that added idea that we're all, we're pretty brand new at this thing of, you know, being the harmonic instrument in a jazz group. They have this whole history and we have to respect that and realize that, you know, if I show up on a gig and there's a piano player and I've never met the piano player before, I have to kind of defer to that player and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, let you do your thing and then let's just see what happens. And if I, if I play some chords, I'll keep it really low key and maybe just play small voicings and or sometimes won't even play chords at all and just, you know, try to be more like a horn player. But then occasionally I'll have experience where, you know, the piano player, it, it becomes immediately obvious that they want to interact with me or maybe they'll drop out and let me comp for one of the other instruments or whatever. And then, oh, okay. So, you know, and then it's, it's kind of a communication thing. So, Tom, getting back to the eight-string guitar in terms of seven-string Lenny Brule, did Lenny have a low B or a low A? Well, he he just had the high string. The, oh, was the, it the other other one? Right, okay. Yeah. So, and it was an A. An A, okay. Which is what you're doing. Right. Yeah. So that was that's a direct rip off of Lenny Brule. So I'm just <laughs> just before we move on to finding how that eight-string guitar turned out and all that, I just wanted to talk to you about George Van Epps. You know the books? You know he brought out three books? Yes. I bought them all. Mm. I just couldn't use them. I haven't met anybody anywhere who's ever thought there were great ways to learn. Are you the first person in my life to have bought those books and thought, you know what, this is the best thing since sliced bread? Uh, the short answer to that is no. Um... <laughs> I, I have read before that Kurt Rosenwinkel supposedly has gone through all three volumes, which wouldn't surprise me. Give him a medal. Yeah. And I also know my friend Steve that we were talking about before has also gone through all three of those volumes. And he's a huge George Van Epps fanatic. He, he loves all things George Van Epps. Um, and he's really, I think, done a lot to continue that legacy. 
I think, it, it, you know, he could almost be considered to be kind of the the inheritor of the man of the mantle, so to speak. Yeah, as for me, I I do currently possess all three volumes. You still got them. Well done. They're 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 on permanent loan from a couple of friends of mine, though. I I've never actually bought them myself. I have to confess, but um, I did a couple of maybe three or four years ago. Over a summer, I tried going through the first volume, and I only got about, I don't know, 60 or 70 pages in, and I really had a hard time continuing to keep momentum going. I think it's the repetitive nature of the books and the exercises, and I mean, it's a long time since I've had them, and I mm -hmm. gave them a good bash, and I tried because I really wanted to. I mean, I thought George was the most amazing guitar player and musician, so, you yeah. know, I, I really wanted, I was so excited when I heard these and they were expensive the books but mm. i just and it didn't stop me even though i couldn't get through the first one from buying the other two but uh I, it was just monotonous you know <laughs> yeah what i my conclusion and and i still at some point hope that i can can get motivated again to to give it another go and get through all three volumes someday maybe maybe not i don't know or at least maybe the first volume but the takeaway for me was i think that George Van Epps had an incredibly organized approach to counterpoint on the guitar. My theory about what's in those books, the, the idea behind them, is he basically is trying to give you every possible way to get from one note to another and from two notes at the same time, this note and this, and three notes and so forth. And so going through everything in those books will give you so many combinations that you'll physically have to work out in your muscle memory that his playing is a demonstration of what working on those books can do for you. He was able to improvise bass lines, chords, and melodies all at the same time because it's such a complicated thing to do on guitar, but he had worked out all those combinations sort of ahead of time, just like when you're improvising a single note line, you have to learn scales and licks and get your rhythm down and be able to swing and all that. And then when you're improvising, you're putting that stuff together in real time. You're not actually pulling it out of the, the clear blue sky, you know you're reorganizing materials that you've already worked on and already familiar with. So I think it's the same thing with that. And the thing that just that made me not able to continue with it was I found it to be, quite frankly, not that well organized. I thought it was kind of random, like, try this, try that, do this, you know. And I didn't really see a clear narrative through all this stuff. I think you'd have to go through all three volumes to kind of see the big picture of how it all fits together. I suppose it's interesting because you were talking about Ted Green earlier when I bought his Chord Chemistry book. I think I was 16 or something, 17 when I bought it. There was something so approachable about that, although it was kind of random at the same time, you know, a gazillion chords. But those sections at the back of the book really opened my eyes. And I guess it was a, a momentum thing because I felt like even though I wasn't a jazz player, I felt like I was heading towards being one. It was giving me big dollops of things that I could try and get immediate satisfaction from. I suppose we're, we're almost into today's learning, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a huge chord chemistry fan. Um, I actually didn't get that book until a little bit later in my life. My One of the very first, maybe even the very first guitar book I ever bought when I was probably like 14 was his first volume of single note soloing. And That was tricky, that one. Yeah. And I remember reading through it a few times and I was such a terrible reader at that point that it was, 
you know, like pulling teeth just to get through one example. That book is actually written for people who can play. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of very quickly ran out of steam with that. And I and because of that, I kind of I, I won't say that I discounted Ted Green's other books, but I wasn't as, as interested in checking them out because of that experience. But then I, I can't remember exactly what made me want to get Chord Chemistry. I think somebody recommended it to me. And the, I think it was the year that I turned 30. I was actually doing a, an out-of-town gig on the island of Guam, which is in the South Pacific. And there's basically nothing to do during the day. So I practiced all day, every day during that summer. And that summer, was I, I brought that book with me, and I went through it from cover to cover and was really an amazing experience for me. I, I got so much out of it. And, and I agree with you that the beginning part of the book that has just gazillions of chords that seem just kind of randomly thrown up was a little bit overwhelming. But because I had so much spare time, I just, okay, I'm going to go through every single one. And I found a bunch that I still play now. But the end part, like you said, it was just like really a, a great revelation of just kind of how music works and how the guitar works. There's a lot of great stuff in that end part. I almost recommend to people if they if they want to check out Chord Chemistry to start at the end of the book. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, can you finish off on the eight string? Because I've got a few other things. I could literally talk to you all day. I can't, and I know you can't. So can we, we finish off the eight string, getting the guitar, and then there's a few other areas I just want to touch on. Maybe... I'm enjoying this so much. Maybe we could do this again sometime if you have the time. But anyway, the eight-string guitar. So the the story about uh, picking up the guitar was was the one that I think is kind of interesting that might be worth relating. Is uh, so I, I had the guitar built during the year about 2000 and into 2001, and right around the end of the summer of 2001, Bill Conklin was telling me that the guitar was going to be ready. Well, it just so happened I live in Florida. And my parents live where I had grown up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is in the middle of the U.S. So I, you know, to go visit them, it was a plane trip. Uh, so I had gone to visit them uh, around that time. It was actually the beginning of September. And while I was at my parents' house, September 11th happened. I, I remember my dad coming and waking me up and saying, there's something big going on. You better <laughs> come check this out. Everybody can remember where they were. I, I know exactly where yeah. I was when that news came through. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, after the, the initial horror of it wore off and the, we didn't we didn't think we were all going to die, you know, because the, uh, there was a day or two where we thought, oh, this is it. You know, we're, we're, there's going to be a big nuclear war or whatever, you know. I came to the end of my life having achieved virtually nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure that's what I was thinking, too. So the upshot was all the airlines had grounded all the airplanes, so I couldn't fly home on the, the you know, the ticket that I had to go home. And it just so happened that I got a call from Bill Conklin saying that my guitar was ready so i was going to have to rent a car to drive back home anyway and where his shop was which is springfield missouri wasn't exactly on the way but it wasn't that far off so i thought what a great opportunity i'll save shipping i won't have to pay to have the guitar shipped and i can pick up the guitar and meet him and see where the guitar was built and everything so that's exactly what i did i, I went to his shop saw you know saw some other guitars that he was building at the time and got to hang out with him and meet him how nervous were you tom before you saw and played and heard your new guitar I don't remember being nervous, but I was definitely very excited because it was something I'd been leading up to for several years with all this, you know, all the research and the, the failed attempt and everything. 
the, the funny thing that happened was when I got there, he and uh, a guy that worked for him were asking me questions about myself. And they said, so you live in Florida. What do you do? And I said, oh, I'm, I, I'm a musician. They said, yeah, but what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a musician. And they, they were just dumbfounded. They said, wow you play music for a living? Wow, that's amazing. You know, they, they were super impressed. I guess in, in that part of the country, it's pretty rare. You know, there's very little opportunity. They, I remember them telling me that uh, there's this town, Branson, Missouri, that's kind of like a resort town. They said that's about the only place where anybody can, you know, make any kind of living as a musician. So here these guys are super impressed that I'm this professional musician. Then they put this guitar in my hands, and I could barely even make it. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's absolutely totally brilliant. Prepared for for how you know how lost I would be. Yeah, I hope you said to them, you, you just don't understand what I'm playing. It's so yeah. far <laughs> out there. Yeah, it's so, so advanced that you can't possibly, it probably just sounds like a bunch of fluff noise and notes to you. But That reminds me of, uh, I used to play in this band called uh, SGQ, Scottish Guitar Quartet. It wasn't classical music. It was a meld of all different sort of stuff. Okay. And I remember at halftime being outside and I saw an old man and his wife coming out at half time and the music was just like littered filled with melody and mm -hmm. i heard the old guys turn to his wife and said i never heard one bloody melody that whole set <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway so you got the guitar happy i was i was extremely happy other than the fact that i totally sucked at playing it um it took me a lot longer than i thought it was going to to get used to it the the one that really threw me was the high a string but aside from just learning that string and where the notes were and everything what i didn't realize up until i got that guitar was how much i depend physically on the sense of touch of where my finger or my, where my left hand is on the fingerboard and even my, the palm of my hand touching the fingerboard having my orientation of where which string i'm on that was completely destroyed You're taking my questions tom that was exactly what i wanted to ask you because <laughs> it must feel weird for a long time that you've got that extra space absolutely and there was at least a year where i was i couldn't play the eighth string and i couldn't play six string anymore either because it screwed me up for that so i would I was still playing my six string guitar on gigs and then coming home and just practicing uh, on the eighth string. And there was this really difficult breaking in period where I just felt like I couldn't play either instrument. And then I don't know how it happened, but somehow it sort of evened out and I started getting used to, more used to the eighth string after maybe a couple of years. And then maybe a year or two after that, the six string just started feeling like a toy. And I still do play six string guitar um, when I play uh, anything other than jazz or classical music, if I'm playing rock or pop or country or blues or anything like that, and I still do a fair number of gigs where I do that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's not exactly um, Mahavishnu, but you, there's the thing where it's all changing colors and everything, and you're playing right. a six string, yeah? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and there's so much in the rock and blues and country and funk vocabulary that's built around the way the guitar is tuned and set up which doesn't happen as much in jazz because the harmonic model in jazz is piano. So it's not like there's tons of idiomatic jazz guitar things that I can't do anymore on eight string guitar because most jazz guitar players were kind of trying to imitate piano anyway. So yeah, I, I, so I do find that playing other styles of music, I still prefer to play six string. And now at this 
point, I hardly ever practice six string guitar. And it just is like riding a bicycle for me when I pull it out because I've still got a six string guitar inside of my eight string anyway. So it's not like I'm losing touch with that. Did you find that once you became spatially aware of this extra string Botman top that you were, it was affecting your musicality and that you felt you had to use it initially because it was there? There was a certain amount of that, although the, the initial thing that I tried to do was to just play the eight string guitar and not play either of the two outer strings just to get used to playing the guitar, the fingerboard width and all that stuff. And just that took me probably about a year to really feel comfortable just playing my six string stuff. But it was more like dipping my foot in the water eventually, like saying, okay, I think this is a, a spot where I know where the note is on the A string, so I'll add that to the top of the chord, or I'll add it as part of my line, or the low B string. The, the low B string was a little quicker, but no, I, I, I don't think, I don't know, maybe I initially, you know what I did go through was I, I was like a kid in a candy store figuring out voicings that had eight notes, and I think that a little bit of that happened where I probably maybe even still to this day, I sometimes play these huge big voicings because I can. And I sometimes question myself, was that the most musically appropriate thing or did I just do it because it's cool that I can, you know? Tom, have you, I mean, obviously you're a virtuoso musician, but has the fact that you've got an eight string guitar set you apart and given you more of a profile in your, your region Radio of America. Yes, I, I do think that that is the case. That that nine-string player from Sweden that I mentioned, I remember him telling me the same thing. I, he said one thing that he noticed was that when he was in New York, it sort of was, a, you know, kind of like something that people would remember him by. Which is and, exactly and, why I'm getting a 10-string guitar. <laughs> Yeah. You feel that it has, it, people don't forget you because, oh, it's the guy with eight strings. Right. Now, of course, that might not necessarily mean they remember who I am or that they're going to call me for a gig or something. But yeah, they, it's, oh, yeah, he's that eight string guitar guy. Although I've been surprised that a lot of musicians who don't play guitar, I sometimes get the impression that they don't even realize my guitar has extra strings. I've, you know, I've had experiences where I've been playing with a particular musician for a couple of years and they look at my guitar. There's more than eight. There's more than six strings on that, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> right. OK, well, I mean, I found that fascinating. We've almost taken up the whole show just talking about that. And as I said earlier, I would love the chance to talk to you again because there's so many areas that I want to talk to you about for now. I just wanted to talk about one other thing, which was if you could briefly talk about your confessions of a stupid guitar player. Okay, that goes back to another, probably probably the only major hero of mine that I haven't mentioned is Mick Goodrick. And can I ask you a supplementary question about that? Sure. I noticed in one of your videos, you go into replacing the fourth you know, basically quarto harmony quite a lot. And am I right in thinking that Mick Goodrick put in a in the book, The Advancing Guitarist, that he was looking more at getting rid of the third and putting in the fourth, and I wondered if that had been a big influence on you? Well, he definitely has been a towering influence on me, and as a matter of fact, I, a lot of my teaching is based on his work. I, I find that, let's see, how can I put this? I don't know if you're familiar with the, the voice leading almanacs that he put out in the early 2000s. I just had that one book which I stole off a friend and I had to give him it back. Uh -huh. the, the advancing guitarist thing was the only thing I've looked at. But okay. I have seen him live, by the way. Mm. Uh, him and John Abercrombie, Abercrombie came yeah. to Edinburgh 
Oh, wow. It was in the 90s. I was a young guy at the time. It was in either the 80s or early 90s. And I remember that concert. It was quite amazing. He looked like sort of, well, he looked like a sort of hobo, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But the the playing was sublime. Anyway, sorry, I'll shut up and let you talk. Uh, So anyway, those voice leading almanacs, the first time I ever saw one, uh, I kind of had the same reaction as you. There are all these colored pages and rows and rows of letters. And I just, this looks like Greek. What could I ever possibly do with this? So I, I, I didn't buy the book or anything. And then a few years later, uh, I have a friend named Bruce Saunders, who uh, used to live in New York. He's, he's in Austin now. But anyway, he, he had a couple of the pages from that book on his website in sort of like the lessons area. And I said, okay, let, let me take a look at this stuff and see if I can make heads or tails of it. And it was kind of like a light bulb went off. Maybe it was because I just had to look at like one or two pages and it didn't seem so intimidating. But I suddenly realized what the idea was behind the book and immediately bought both of the volumes that were available. And when the third one came out, I bought that one. And I really would have to say that a huge part of my harmonic concept, both as a player and as a teacher, is based specifically on those books. I just I think they're revolutionary that the blurbs that he got from famous players that are on the covers of those books are no exaggeration. You know, it wasn't just like mixed buddies, you know, trying to make him look good. I, I really think I mean, I think there's something from Steve Swallow saying if aliens come down and you know want to see what future music looks like, they'll look to this book or something along those lines. Just really glowing things. People talking about how this is going to be historically uh, relevant, you know, in future times to come and so forth. And I, I really do think that's the case. So why, why is it that when the world is in such a state of flux that the sound, the quarto sound has not come to the fore more? Where, you know, there is no distinct tonality or there, there, need, there need not be. Um, boy, that's a that would be a really difficult question to answer, especially in a short amount of time. But I, I think that it probably goes back, you know, to into history of the way that classical Western European music evolved with tonality. And then the composers in the late 1800s and early 1900s sort of breaking from that tradition and trying to get beyond it and stretching it and pulling it beyond its boundaries. And all of a sudden, I think that sort of let loose it was like a snowball effect like in the 20th century it just grew by leaps and bounds all of the like trying to go to more extremes and more extremes to the extent of atonality and all, all the stuff that's happened since then and it really there had there wasn't like a 500 year period where chordal harmony was you know had reigned superior and this all these traditions had been established so in one sense i guess my answer to that would be that i don't think there's been enough time for a common practice set of practices to to be established for chordal harmony or just i guess what i would consider modal harmony when we're talking about quartal harmony we're talking about harmony that's built in intervals of a fourth as opposed to tertiary harmony which is built in intervals of a third correct would you say that maybe the problem for quartal harmony the reason it hasn't dug in more is that harmony in thirds is one People just hear that and accept it as the de facto standard. Yeah, I think to, to a certain extent that's true. I mean, our tradition in the Western world goes back hundreds of years, and almost anybody, unless they grew up under rock, that grows up in the Western world it has heard those sounds their whole life and gotten used to hearing them. I do think that is very gradually changing slightly uh, just because of everything that happened in the 20th 
century and in the 21st century with sampling and, and electronic music. People now, I think it's less unusual to hear some of these strange harmonies because, you know, there's people that will like put two samples of record mixed together that are in two different keys or something like that. And it, it doesn't sound as weird to the average person as it might have in 1900, let's say. Well, I once played Clashing Sounds by Bella Bartok and believe you me, that sounds odd. <laughs> C and D flat majors at the same time. <laughs> right. But it, yeah, I noticed I said a little bit. I don't think... <laughs> I don't think that the mainstream public has, has developed a taste for 12-tone serialism or anything. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, I mean, again, it's really hard for me to explain in a really short amount of time why I think that these voice-leading books are so important. But one small thing that I could mention is I think up until these books came out, as far as I know at least, what you're exactly what you're talking about with chordal harmony – People just assumed, musicians just assumed that chordal harmony means notes that are stacked in fourths, period. Like, you know, whenever somebody says, play some fourth voicings, and, you know, get, get a lot of guitar players know those voicings where you're playing perfect fourths up and down the neck, or maybe an augmented fourth here or there to conform to the scale, and that's it. You, you thought that's that was all there was to chordal harmony, but Mick Goodrick explores every possible combination of every single one of those chords basically so uh, just like you might do with a seventh chord taking you know you got c major seven four inversions of closed position four inversions of drop two four inversions of drop three and you know this of course i'm again i don't maybe not everybody knows what those terms mean they'll just have to watch your videos or my videos or someone's videos to find out okay <laughs> right so basically exploring every possible way to arrange the notes in those chords and furthermore to voice lead from one chord to another within a given scale like a, a major scale or a melodic minor scale or harmonic minor scale those are the three principal scales he explores through those books and it's not just chordal harmony he also has two three other classes of harmony besides tertiary and chordal which he calls them triad over base one triad over base two and uh spread cluster but basically what if i've done anything that's added something to that i think i have kind of figured out a way to make it a little easier for guitar players to learn this stuff Mick Goodrick tends to be very, uh, he's like Yoda, you know, he, he gives you a really short sentence and expects you to figure out what it means, kind of. Does he mix the words order up? No, he doesn't do that. Like, practice you go shall. <laughs> but but uh, on one hand, his, all his teaching materials are incredibly clear and well-organized and precise, but I, he actually makes a point of saying, I'm only showing you so much of this stuff because it's up to you to, to figure out what to do with it because he doesn't want a bunch of people imitating him. He wants you know people to do their own thing with it. So what I hope to do, because like you, most people I know that have looked at those voice leading books just like run screaming from the building the minute they see them and don't want to have anything to do with them and can't make heads or tails of them. Uh, what I would like to do is to, to make them a little bit more easy to understand for people to get into without taking 
completely away the original intention of, of Mick Goodrick, which was for everybody to do something different with them. I feel like I've come up with just in my own practice, and then I've uh, it's borne itself out in my teaching that I've I've been able to get these concepts across pretty well to up uh, to students. That I've figured out ways to organize those materials that are a little bit more easy to to grasp. What I figured out basically is that. Since I already know my seventh chords pretty well, I can relate all those other types of voicings to the seventh chords and basically by altering one note. Like you said, the, the chordal harmony or four-part fourths, I figured out if you just take any seventh chord and replace the third with a, a, a step up or a fourth, then you'll get a voicing of a chordal type voicing. Listen, I, I could really talk and talk and talk with you. I know you're now running out of time and we've been talking for probably around an hour. Would you come back and do another podcast at some time? Because we've not even got on to your confessions of a stupid guitarist and a whole lot of it. Would that be possible, Tom? Yeah, yeah, I'd be more than happy to. That would be brilliant. I think Everyone listening to this around the world is going to be absolutely fascinated by what you've been talking about today, and we've only scratched the surface, so very exciting, very interesting. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me, and I look forward to talking to you again at some point in the future. Yeah, thank you for having me. I was happy to be here. It was a fun conversation. Well, I did say at the top of the show that we didn't really get off the eight-string guitar, did we? We were all over the place, but I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed talking to Tom. I was really taken by how two people who are into guitar can have so many things in common in terms of their development and learning and the books and players that they listen to. As said, I'm really hopeful that I'll be able to get another interview with Tom and we can talk about all the other things that he does and his essays on being a guitar player. I think that would be really interesting. Anyway, I'd just like to thank you for listening to this show. It's really great to think of people around the world who are listening to this, and the numbers seem to be growing and growing. So please like and tell others and share, and we'll make it even bigger. If you have any requests of people that you would like to have interviewed, or indeed if you feel you have something to share with the world, get in touch. So for me, Jed Brocky, thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.